This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this special bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'm dropping this episode on a day you're probably surprised to hear from me. That's because I'm in London attending CrimeCon UK, but I wanted to share a little of the true crime stories you'd be learning about if you were here with me. So instead, I've come to you. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Emergency. Okay. Um, hi, I just found a body. Oh, go ahead, caller. What's your emergency? Um, I just found a body. Right, okay. A, a, a body, is it? Are they breathing? No, they're dead. They look like they've um, possibly been there like a few days or something. It's just right. And stuff. right, okay. Bear me a second. On June 10th, 2021, an elderly woman vanished without a trace from her own home in Wembley, London. 16 agonizing days later, a staggering 200 miles away, visitors exploring the seaside town of Solcombe stumbled across a horrific scene. There amidst the beauty of the coastal landscape lay a headless body. In an instant, a quiet seaside retreat had suddenly become the backdrop for an unfolding tragedy. Join me now as we embark on a chilling journey into the mysterious case of Miquin Chong, a Malaysian woman who against all odds forged a path to prosperity in the United Kingdom. You'll hear how her financial success was soon overshadowed by a haunting tragedy when her benevolence and deteriorating health attracted the attention of an unexpected predator. Together we'll delve into the depths of this perplexing crime, unearthing the unsettling realities of human nature and the importance of safeguarding our communities. Joining us to unravel the mysteries surrounding this gruesome case is Tyler Allen, host of the true crime podcast, The Minds of Madness. Tyler and I met several years ago at CrimeCon and after we were already fans of each other's podcasts. Once Upon a Crime and Minds of Madness are similar in style, format, and are both meticulously researched to bring listeners the most intriguing true crime stories. Tyler launched Minds of Madness just a few months after Once Upon a Crime was born, and we were both early listeners of each other's shows. We've been looking forward to collaborating together for some time now, and I can't wait for you to get to know Tyler and Minds of Madness. I hope you enjoy this episode and that you'll check out others of the over 160 episodes of Minds of Madness. Currently, I'm in the UK attending CrimeCon, where Tyler and I have the opportunity to bring this very case we're discussing today live in front of an audience. Now let's get back to this fascinating case together. On June 27, 2021, a typical day unfolded in Salcombe, a picturesque oceanfront town nestled in the southwest of England. Known for its yachting, high property prices, and bustling tourist trade, it was the least likely place anyone would expect to stumble across a crime scene. That day, a visiting family headed away from the hustle and bustle of the town to explore the quieter areas nature had to offer. Just off Bennett Road, overlooking the ocean, the family found a forgotten path, 
obscured by a tapestry of vibrant greenery. Veiled in a cloak of moss, blanketed by a carpet of fallen leaves, it was a haven of seclusion. But what the unsuspecting family stumbled upon at the end of that picturesque trail was far from serene. It was a jarring discovery, triggering a frantic scramble for a cell phone to call emergency services. There nestled in the greenery lay the remains of a woman. Immediately, the advanced state of decomposition was evident, but there was something even more unsettling. An important identifying feature was missing, the head. It would be several days before police would locate the woman's skull just a few yards away in the dense undergrowth. Joining us to unravel the mysteries surrounding this gruesome case is Esther Ludlow, host of the successful true crime podcast, Once Upon a Crime. I've been a listener of Esther's podcast for as long as I can remember. In fact, I was listening to her podcast way before I even started thinking about starting my own show. And with nearly a decade of podcasting experience under her belt, it's clear to see Esther's experience and passion for the genre shine through in every episode. Currently, I'm in the UK attending CrimeCon, where Esther and I have the opportunity to bring this very case we're discussing today to life in front of a live audience, which we'll be making available to all our Patreon supporters. Now let's get back to this fascinating case together. In a place like Solcombe, it was a baffling scenario. Gruesome scenes like this were just unheard of. When police arrived on the scene, they moved quickly to secure the area, beginning their investigation with the most pressing question. Who was this woman? Inside her jacket, police found quotes from the Bible written on scraps of paper. Her purse contained a camera, shopping bag, and orange rope, but no identification. An autopsy would later reveal a chilling truth. The woman's head had been meticulously severed, which dispelled any notion that wild animals might have been responsible. And the presence of a skull fracture indicated her death had been the result of a deliberate and targeted assault on an unsuspecting victim. By June 30th, authorities had at least one answer. The body belonged to 67-year-old Mi Quin Chong, Deborah to her friends. The last time anyone had seen Deborah was way back on June 10th, over 200 miles away at her home in Wembley, London. She'd been reported missing on June 11th by her lodger, then reported missing again on June 30th by yet another person, the same day she was identified. Finally, investigators had the who, but didn't have a clue about the why. At this point, all they had were more questions. Authorities quickly set out to unravel the mysterious threads of Deborah's past, hoping that by doing so, they might find some of the answers they were so desperately looking for. Deborah Chung's journey had been nothing short of remarkable. Born into poverty in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, she fearlessly set her sights on a brighter future. In the 1970s, Deborah made the decision to immigrate to England in her 20s to pursue her studies at Huddersfield Polytechnic. Driven by her passion for technology and a thirst for knowledge, but that was just the beginning. Deborah's leap of faith opened doors to a life that many can only dream of. She found love, got married, built a beautiful home, and attained financial stability that greatly surpassed her humble beginnings. In the 1990s, Deborah would lose one of those elements of happiness and arguably the one hardest to replace, her husband. Only in her 40s 
Deborah became a widow, a title she'd keep for the rest of her life. It was also during this time that Deborah's mental well-being took a significant downturn when she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, a condition she managed with the help of medication. In the wake of her husband's death, Deborah found herself grappling with deep feelings of loneliness and vulnerability. Seeking comfort and human connection, she used her financial means to actively bring people into her life. It was a way for her to fill the void and create meaningful relationships, all while also making a positive impact on the world around her. Over the years, Deborah developed quite a reputation for her extraordinary generosity, using her amassed wealth to aid people experiencing homelessness or in dire circumstances. She opened her doors, inviting people to live with her without even asking for rent in return. One she'd even given a friend 50,000 pounds to help buy a house. Deborah had a remarkable talent for opening her heart and home to people, no matter their backgrounds or financial struggles, offering a helping hand without judgment. Another way Deborah filled her life with meaning was through her church. Deborah's sweet and childlike curious nature led her to strike up conversations with people, always eager to learn more about them, never missing the opportunity to exchange friendly hellos or share a warm smile, making others feel seen and appreciated. For Deborah, engaging in conversations was a mean of making her presence felt, and she was open to talking to practically anyone, particularly when it came to discussing her faith. However, her neighbors saw a quieter side of Deborah, unless they heard her singing, that is. Although Deborah appeared reserved and perhaps a touch eccentric, she was never too busy to engage in small talk or share a cup of tea. By 2021, Deborah was living with a lodger in her stately home, and her mobility had declined significantly. But things took a turn for the worse when her oldest sister passed away, an event that led to a sharp decline in Deborah's mental health. It all began with letter writing. Deborah believed that King Charles, Prince Charles at the time, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson were communicating with her. In her mind, they had a full-fledged relationship and were sending each other messages through YouTube. Deborah wasn't sleeping or eating because she was spending all her time writing letters to the two powerful men, and not just writing them, but mailing them out. She wrote so many letters, she eventually got noticed but not by the prince or prime minister. Instead, those letters were noticed by the Fixated Threat Assessment Center, a combination of police and a mental health unit. Their purpose was to assess the risk that fixated people pose to public figures and manage that risk accordingly. Because many people who fixate on or stalk celebrities suffer from mental health conditions, they're often referred to their local mental health treatment center as a preventative measure. And that's what happened to Deborah. On March 1st, 2021, she was referred to a community mental health team for her barrage of strange letters. Prior to that, she'd been receiving holistic treatment from Gemma Mitchell, an accredited osteopath that she'd met through her church. Deborah firmly believed that Gemma's healing methods were beneficial for her well-being. However, as time went on, it became clear that the alternative medicine, which involved physical manipulation of the body, wasn't sufficient to address Deborah's needs, and in May, she was prescribed antipsychotic medication as part of her treatment plan. It was around that time that Deborah began to change. The tiny woman became even more frail, to the point where in early June, 
her new lodger, David, asked for someone to come in and help care for Deborah. But perhaps Deborah's most notable change was her newfound discernment with money. While she'd always been quick to say yes in the past, she now started saying no. Those who'd gotten used to taking advantage of the generous widow suddenly found themselves out of luck. Deborah began cutting off their free ride, and needless to say, not everyone was pleased about it. As the saying goes, people with nothing to lose often have everything to gain. On June 11, 2021, Deborah's lodger David reported her missing. He'd last seen her at home the day before. It was now getting late and he was starting to get worried about her. Deborah hadn't taken off on an impulsive trip to the Bahamas or a friend's house for the night. She was a debilitated elderly woman on new medication. It was dangerous for her to be gone so long. Where could she be? By June 15th, there was still no sign of Deborah. It was as if she'd vanished into thin air. Police made a post on social media about her disappearance, but nothing came of it. In fact, there was very little coverage of her disappearance across the media, outside of a few individuals trying to raise awareness about her case. While mainstream media works hard to bring coverage to cases of missing children and young women, sadly, many other cases slip through the cracks. Cases involving marginalized individuals grappling with mental health, economic hardships, or the vulnerabilities that come with old age. While friends and family bear the profound grief of losing their loved ones, shedding light on their disappearance and capturing the attention of the media and law enforcement can be an uphill battle. Whether it's because some of these individuals exist on the outskirts of society or because disappearances within their community are more prevalent, the lack of media coverage diminishes the chances of people actively searching for them. In fact, it was 16 days after Deborah was reported missing that her body was found, and it wasn't by people that were looking for her at all. It was purely by accident. A Vice article summed up the sad disappearance and discovery of Deborah Chong with the comment author Francisco Garcia got from the mayor's office. The town is full of visitors at the moment, and we would encourage everyone to carry on with their holiday for the businesses to also carry on and not to speculate or feed the rumor mill. On June 30th, police made the official announcement that Deborah had been found, and for the time being, they were calling her death unexplained. They guessed that her body had been there for several days, despite the regular presence of dog walkers in the area. An elderly woman disappeared for 16 days without a trace, only for her body to be discovered 200 miles from her home in an upper-class seaside resort at the height of tourist season, decapitated. Not only was it unexplained, but when police discovered the truth, it would turn out to be unimaginable. The hunt was on, and police began the interview process, trying to find out exactly what had happened to the elderly widow. It was quickly revealed that David the Lodger had a very interesting piece of evidence. After Deborah disappeared, he'd received a WhatsApp message from Deborah's osteopath, spiritual healer, and fellow church member, Gemma Mitchell. In the message, Gemma informed him that Deborah had left town for a year to be with her family. She was going somewhere near the ocean. Considering where Deborah's body had been found, the message now seemed incredibly eerie. Next, they examined the report made to the missing persons charity 
a UK charity that provides specialist support to people who are missing or at risk of missing and the family and friends left behind. The report had been made on June 30th, the same day police identified Deborah's body. In the email, the sender claimed that Deborah was staying by the ocean with family for a year and that she was also lonely. Once again, the person with the insider information was Gemma. Finally, investigators turned their attention to Deborah's cell phone, uncovering a trove of text messages exchanged between the murdered widow and an individual she agreed to give a staggering sum of 200,000 pounds to. But who was the intended beneficiary of this massive lump sum? You guessed it, Gemma Mitchell. However, in a stunning twist, detectives discovered that Deborah had retracted the offer of 200,000 pounds mere days before her puzzling disappearance. And then they found that on the exact day Deborah had vanished, Gemma had sent a message asking Deborah if they could meet up. But Deborah cryptically responded that she, quote, did not wish to discuss money. It was clear she knew what Gemma had wanted to discuss. Suspicion deepened when CCTV footage captured Gemma arriving at Deborah's residence on June 11th, the day she was reported missing. Gemma came with a sizable blue suitcase. Five hours later, she was seen leaving with the same suitcase, now visibly heavier and bulging at the seams. The startling connection between Gemma and Deborah raised a slew of unanswered questions. What had motivated Gemma to relentlessly pursue Deborah for money? Why had she visited Deborah's house on the very day she vanished? And almost ominously, did Gemma hold the key to unraveling the truth behind Deborah's bewildering fate? Born on July 22, 1984, Gemma Mitchell had a privileged upbringing in Australia, with her mother holding a prominent position in the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office. After her parents' divorce, Gemma moved to the UK with her mother and sister and eventually enrolled at King's College in London to study human sciences, where it quickly became evident Gemma was not only privileged, but also exceptionally intelligent, earning her the prestigious Hamilton Prize for Anatomical Excellence for her remarkable skills in dissecting human corpses. After graduating with top honors, Gemma seemed destined for success in any field she chose, ultimately setting her sights on a career in osteopathy. For those unfamiliar with the term, osteopathy falls under the realm of alternative medicine. Its fundamental principle revolves around the interconnectedness of the body, mind, and spirit, with all possessing the inherent capacity for self-healing. Through targeted physical manipulations of the musculoskeletal system, osteopaths aim to promote overall well-being and facilitate the body's natural healing processes. Gemma studied at the British School of Osteopathy and eventually made her way back to Australia in 2009 to practice her profession. In fact, she boasted on her website she was attuned to subjects in neuroanatomy, genetics, and the dissection of human cadavers. In 2015, for some inexplicable reason, Gemma sold her business, left Australia, and returned to the UK to move in with her mother. There was just one problem. Gemma couldn't actually practice osteopathy legally in the UK because she wasn't registered with the General Osteopathic Council. 
but maybe she didn't need the money, considering she still had her home back in Australia to fall back on. Or perhaps she had a different reason for staying put. Maybe she wanted to take care of her aging retired mother. Either way, Gemma settled into her family's 4 million pound London home, worth about 7 million Canadian or 5 million American. Not too shabby, or was it? You'd assume a home kept in a family for generations and worth that kind of money would be a grand opulent place, well taken care of and full of nice furniture, antiques, and maybe even a few domestic workers. But the house Gemma owned with her mother and sister was anything but luxurious. Turns out, they paid contractors £230,000 to add another story onto the home, hoping to increase the value, but instead were scammed out of their money, and the swindlers left the women with a dilapidated house in shambles. Scaffolding was left everywhere, and alarmingly, there was no roof on the property. Ceilings and walls were left half-built, and some of the rooms were inaccessible. Boxes and junk were everywhere. Mattresses, paperwork, and building material crammed into every available space, and the kitchen was full of rotting food. Sadly, it looked like a pair of hoarders were living there in squalor instead of a pair of well-to-do educated women. Maybe the stress of the house situation had become too much for Gemma to handle because it was during this turbulent time that she violated a non-molestation order a legal measure similar to a restraining order in North America, involving her sister and brother-in-law. Ultimately, she received a conditional discharge, but it was an indicator that Gemma was beginning to slide off the rails. Perhaps it was the chaos and uncertainty in her own life that led Gemma to seek solace in the church. And it was in August of 2020, she met Deborah Chong, a generous, friendly widow who must have looked like the answer to Gemma's prayers. At first, their friendship started on what appeared to be a level playing field. Both Deborah and Gemma were single women with a deep devotion to their Christian faith, providing a strong foundation for their connection. And initially, their relationship appeared to have a healthy balance of support and reciprocity. However, as time went on, it became evident Gemma had ulterior motives in the relationship. Drawing from her background in healing practices, she positioned herself as Deborah's healer, not just focusing on her physical and spiritual well-being, but also on her financial matters. Gemma saw an opportunity to exploit Deborah's wealth for her own benefit. Through subtle hints and persistent complaints, Gemma skillfully worked her way into Deborah's financial affairs, and eventually, after enough persuasion, Deborah offered a significant sum of £200,000 to Gemma for home repairs. There was just one condition attached to the generous offer. The house had to be utilized as a place of Christian worship. Gemma probably would have agreed to anything Deborah said at that point, as long as it meant having a roof over her head, literally. Now that Deborah had so generously offered to help Gemma and her mother with their money problem, Gemma began to ask her other questions. The usual ordinary things friends ask each other, like about Deborah's will, and who would inherit Deborah's house after she died? Okay, maybe not so usual. Their text message exchanges revolved around the dilapidated condition of the house and the financial matters at hand. However, as Deborah's mental state became more unstable, marked by her letter-writing campaign to the Prince and Prime Minister, 
and the need for new medication. She had a change of heart regarding the money, and it happened just days before her mysterious disappearance. Deborah suddenly withdrew her offer to give Gemma the money, and instead suggested Gemma sell the house and enjoy the proceeds from the sale. But it was a decision that didn't sit well with Gemma. After all, she'd spent the better part of a year executing the long con on Deborah, and now the money she believed she deserved was slipping away at the blink of an eye. That meant she'd have no way to fix the horrible condition of her home. She'd been living in absolute squalor, and it couldn't go on for much longer. The situation was causing a lot of tension between the two women. In fact, when Gemma asked to come to Deborah's for a visit, Deborah specifically texted Gemma not to mention the money or the house because it was causing stress. But Gemma had a plan to alleviate that stress as soon as she took care of one problem. On June 11th, 2021, Gemma embarked on a deadly journey. Armed with a large blue rolling suitcase, hopping onto public transit on her way to Deborah's home, she wheeled the suitcase through the streets effortlessly, using one hand to trail it behind her like an afterthought. After arriving at Deborah's at 8 a.m., Gemma headed inside. The exact sequence of events remains shrouded in mystery, but forensic evidence tells a terrifying story. It revealed that Deborah suffered a severe skull fracture, possibly resulting from a forceful blow to the head or a violent impact with an object after being pushed. Whatever the case may be, it's clear she was intentionally and brutally murdered. In a gruesome turn of events, it's believed Gemma proceeded to cram Deborah's lifeless body into the suitcase, which may explain the presence of multiple fractured ribs in Deborah's chest. Despite Deborah's small stature, the task of concealing her remains within the suitcase proved arduous, possibly prompting the horrific decision to sever her head. The betrayal Deborah experienced was beyond comprehension, characterized by unspeakable violence and a total disregard for human life. Five hours later, at 1.13 p.m., Gemma was seen leaving Deborah's home in different clothes, but with the same blue suitcase. Except now, the large suitcase was bulging, and Gemma can be seen struggling to pull it in CCTV footage. Clearly, it was much heavier than before. She also had a smaller bag, stuffed with Deborah's personal paperwork. Gemma wheeled the suitcase and the smaller bag around London for two hours before finally calling a cab and having them drop her off at her neighbor's house. Then she dragged the suitcase to her own home and hid it in her family's debris-strewn garden before going to the hospital to treat a broken finger, which she claimed she'd slammed into a car door. When Gemma finally got back home, there was no time to waste and she quickly got to work forging a new will. This one left 95% of Deborah's 700,000 pound estate to Gemma. The remaining 5% was conveniently left to Gemma's mother. After completing the will, it's believed Gemma messaged Deborah's lodger David, assuring him that Deborah was going away to visit family, hoping he wouldn't worry. But it didn't work, 
and David reported her missing. Gemma also made sure to text a friend she'd met on Christian Connection, a dating site, that she'd had a good day, either to keep up appearances or maybe because, for her, the outcome of her actions had made for a good day. The following Sunday, Gemma headed off to church and continued on as if nothing had happened, planning dates and talking to friends. In fact, everyone said she was her usual intense self. Two weeks passed, and those closest to Deborah searched tirelessly for her. But all the while, Gemma knew exactly where she was, crammed inside a suitcase in her garden. We don't know what exactly prompted Gemma to move Deborah's body off of her property, but it could have been the fact that police were now contacting Gemma to find out exactly how she'd come into so much information about the missing widow's whereabouts. On June 26th, Gemma made a phone call. Not from her phone, of course. She was too smart for that. Remember, Gemma had a long con in mind. Months earlier, one of her neighbors, a man named Virgil, passed away, and she managed to get into his room and help herself to a few of his things, including his cell phone and everything she needed to reactivate it. Using his ID and pretending to be the dead man, Gemma was able to activate the cell phone that didn't have any traceable connections to her. Now it was time to use it. Gemma hired a car with the stolen phone and pushed and shoved the suitcase into the trunk. She left her own phone at home, so it couldn't track her movements. Next, she drove all the way to the town of Salcombe to wrap up the entire plot once and for all. But what Gemma didn't plan for was a blown tire along the way. With a loud bang, things began to fall apart. Gemma pulled into a garage, and when the repairman finally arrived to change the tire, Gemma appeared strange and out of it. He also noticed a weird musty smell coming from the vehicle, which seemed strange to him, considering it was a rental car. She didn't seem sure of exactly where she was going, but said she wanted to sleep in her car and see the sunrise before going for a walk. She insisted the mechanic put the blown out tire into the back seat instead of the trunk. It took far longer than anticipated to get to Solcombe, which was already a four hour drive away in the best conditions. And that was probably why Gemma didn't have the time to find a good secluded spot to dump the body. Instead, she carelessly left Deborah's remains at the end of a wooded path where her hired car was captured on CCTV and then headed back home, finally arriving at seven in the morning. Later that day on June 27th, tourists would find Deborah's body and it would be another three days before police found her head. That was June 30th, the date Gemma emailed the missing persons charity and told them the same story she told David. But now everyone knew that Deborah hadn't gone on a vacation. She'd been brutally murdered and decapitated, though her official cause of death was ruled to be unascertained. But it was clear that it wasn't an accident it wasn't self-inflicted, and it wasn't natural causes. Someone had done this to Deborah, and all the evidence, from the message to the lodger, the email to the missing persons charity, the CCTV footage, and the hospital trip, all pointed directly to Gemma. On July 6th, 2021, less than a week after Deborah had been identified as the Sulcum murder victim, Police arrested Gemma at her home. Police! Hello there. Hello, how are you? 
Yeah, good. Sorry, what's your name? Sorry, I'm asleep. You can I? Do you want to come out? Yeah, sure, sure. Right. Hands just right to your hands. All right, Gemma, at this moment, I'm resting on suspicion of murder. Okay, you don't have to say anything, but you may have a defence. Do you want to mention one question? Something which you later rely on court. Anything you do say, maybe given the evidence. Okay, once we're in the cuffs. Right. Am I allowed to. I'll explain everything to you. Okay? Should I get some shoes? Yeah, what? If you want a one sec. Who's inside at the moment? Um, mother. Your mother? Yeah. All in all, it seemed like a calm and quiet arrest, and if you're wondering, it appears they did in fact let her get her shoes. When police searched Gemma's home, they found a treasure trove of evidence. First off, there were piles of Deborah's personal documents, including her passport, driver's license, bank cards, and credit cards. Then they found a forged will in Deborah's name that left 95% of Deborah's 700,000 pound estate to Gemma. The remaining 5% was, conveniently, left to Gemma's mother. There were also several books and articles on writing wills. A PDF copy of Deborah's original will from 2017 was found, leaving her home to the church. Timestamps on Gemma's computer proved that the fake will had been created on July 1st, after Deborah's body had been discovered. Gemma had printed it out and forged Deborah's signature on the fake will. A copy of Deborah's original will from 2017 was found, leaving her home to the church. But the forgeries didn't stop there. One of the witness signatures belonged to Virgil, the deceased man Gemma had stolen the cell phone from. Considering he passed away months before the document was created, it was quickly established Gemma had forged that signature as well, along with all of the other signatures on the fake will. Not only did she commit identity fraud when she reactivated the neighbor's cell phone, but she now had the added bonus of a handy fraudulent signature whenever she needed one. Gemma had been truly thinking ahead. Police finally managed to locate the infamous blue suitcase on top of a neighbor's garden shed. It had been washed out, but in one of the pockets was a bloody tea towel. The DNA was identified as Deborah's. Perhaps the most incriminating discovery came in the form of an entry on Gemma's calendar on June 26th, the same day Gemma had driven Deborah's body to the beach. According to several media outlets, the note was pretty clear. 8 a.m. Collect body back. See letter. Will copy. Two-hour walk. As far as the evidence went, it was so obvious you couldn't get away with writing it into a murder mystery. Although it was clear, Gemma was highly intelligent in some areas. It also became clear she'd overlooked crucial details that any seasoned criminal would have considered. While she may have been adept at manipulating situations and people to her advantage, her lack of foresight and attention to detail had left a trail of evidence that would ultimately lead to her downfall. Gemma's interrogation was pretty straightforward with her taking what we'd call the brick wall approach. The person driving the Volvo waited in the car all that time with the windows down and the front door open, the passenger door open, when it was literally chucking it down with rain and it was windy. Why is that, Gemma? No comment. 
the car stank, didn't it, Gemma? No comment. Stunk of a dead person. No comment. St stunk of Deborah's decomposing body. Is that right, Gemma? No comment. Gemma Mitchell adamantly denied any involvement in the heinous crimes committed against Deborah Chong. But the mounting evidence against her painted a compelling and incriminating picture. Consistent with her earlier denial of any involvement, Gemma maintained her plea of not guilty as the trial for the murder of Mi Quinn Deborah Chong commenced on October 11, 2022. Throughout the trial, Gemma chose not to provide any evidence in her defense, leaving all the heavy lifting of the legal battle on her defense team. With limited material to work with, her attorneys faced an uphill battle in their efforts to challenge the prosecution's case and cast doubt on the allegations against their client. They claimed there was no DNA evidence to prove Deborah's body had ever been inside the suitcase, that there was no evidence of a fight inside Deborah's home, and that because Gemma was so wealthy, she didn't need to kill for money. Her assets, nearly 100,000 pounds in savings, her house in Australia, and the dilapidated house she lived in with her mother that needed hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of repairs. Under cross-examination, the pathologist was asked if the skull and rib fractures could have been caused by Deborah falling down the stairs and then someone performing chest compressions to revive her. The pathologist's response, maybe, but it still didn't explain the decapitation. On October 21st, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict in the trial of Gemma Mitchell, guilty of murder. The following day marked a significant moment in legal history as Gemma's sentencing was broadcast live on television, making her the first person in England and Wales to have their murder sentence televised. As well, it was the first time a woman's sentencing was televised in the United Kingdom. The gravity of the situation and the unprecedented nature of the broadcast only added to the intensity surrounding Gemma's case. You are clearly a highly intelligent woman, having obtained first-class honors in 2006 in human sciences from King's College, London, and then gone on to qualify as an osteopath. And you included on your website, which advertised your services as an osteopath, the fact that you had experience in the dissection of human bodies, that no doubt stood you in good stead when you cut off Deborah's head, although why you chose to do that remains a mystery. Quite apart from anything else, I am driven to the conclusion that you are extremely devious. I said at the outset of these remarks that I would return to the issue of mitigating and aggravating features. The sole mitigation is that you are effectively a woman of previous good character. Although given the gravity of your crime, in my judgment, that entitles you to only a very modest discount. Gemma had lived most of her life just like anyone else. In fact, if she'd never run into financial trouble, Maybe she would have never become a murderer, raising the haunting question. When faced with dire circumstances and trapped into a corner, could any ordinary person, under the right set of circumstances, 
be capable of doing such unthinkable things. As to aggravating features, firstly, the amount of planning and premeditation that went into this offense, although it is right to acknowledge that this is bound to be an invariable feature of a killing done for gain, and I must avoid double counting in that regard. Secondly, there is the issue of Deborah's mental and physical vulnerability, to which I have already referred, and of which you were very well aware. Thirdly, there is the chilling aspect of what you did to and with her body after you had killed her. You have shown absolutely no remorse, and it appears that you are in complete denial as to what you did, notwithstanding what, in my judgment, amounted to overwhelming evidence against you. The enormity of your crime is profoundly shocking, even more so given your apparent religious devotion, as well as the fact that Deborah Chong was a good friend to you and had shown you great kindness. The sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment, and the minimum term of imprisonment that you will in any event be required to serve will be 34 years. There will be deducted from that term the 475 days that you have spent in custody on remand. Gemma will be eligible for parole on July 10th, 2055, just before her 71st birthday. Gemma's mother, Hillary, believes that her daughter is innocent. She's suggested that the suitcase Gemma was captured lugging around London had only dishes and towels in it, or water, snacks, a chair, and umbrella for her trip to the beach. In an interview with thechronicle.com.au, Hillary was quoted saying, quote, I'm old. Gemma's all I've got. Who will help me fix this house now that she's gone? I can't leave it another 30 years. Gemma sorted out the building work. She said she'd look after me to the end, even if she was on her hands and knees. End quote. In a heart-wrenching and ironic turn of events, Gemma Mitchell has now left her own mother in a similar state of vulnerability and loneliness, mirroring the very circumstances that Deborah faced before her life was tragically taken. It serves as a stark reminder of the importance of our individual and collective roles in building a world that cherishes and protects the most vulnerable members of our communities. To stand vigilant against the forces that push individuals to the brink and to extend a helping hand to those who find themselves in dire situations. That'll do it for this special episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to thank Tyler from Minds of Madness and his whole team for asking me on the show. Tyler and I cover similar cases and in a similar style. If you've not yet done so, make sure to listen to Minds of Madness for more intriguing true crime cases. And make sure you follow or subscribe. You'll have a chance to listen to the live show soon that I did at CrimeCon if you're a Patreon member. 
Otherwise, it will be released at a later date on CrimeCon UK's podcast, Crime Conversations. You can find links to our Patreon, as well as Minds of Madness and Crime Conversations in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. This episode was produced in collaboration with Minds of Madness and was researched and written by Nicole Cullen and Catherine Thomas. Audio editing by Aiden Wolf. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be good to one another.